0: We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 42 this morning if you want to go ahead and turn there in your copy of God's Word. Beginning in verse 1, here's what the prophet Isaiah tells us. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice Or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. Till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord. Who created the heavens and stretched them out. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kadar inhabits. Let the habitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord. And declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty Against his foes. In chapters 40 and 41, we saw the plight of the Israelites. They had been removed from their homeland, left to question if God actually cares for them. In Isaiah 40, we learned that not only is God faithful to his people, because he's always faithful to his covenant, but that he can also provide for them. Because he's the all-powerful, all-sovereign ruler of the universe. And then in chapter 41, Isaiah charged the people not to be afraid. And he explains to them how idols are ultimately worthless. Because they are made by human hands. And they cannot remember what happened in the past. Nor predict what will happen in the future. And now we arrive in chapter 42. And we have the first reference to this servant from the Lord. Now we're not explicitly told in these verses that the servant is the Messiah. But you and me know that it is the Messiah. This is a reference to Christ, the one that would come to deliver his people from bondage. So as we work our way through these 13 verses today, we're going to learn number one, the announcement of this servant, number two, the task of for the servant, and then number three, the response to the servant. The announcement of the servant, the task for the servant, and the response to the servant. Number one, the announcement of the servant. Look at verse one. The language used in verse one is one of presentation. How do I know that? Because we have the word behold being used there. We have this same word used in Malachi 3 with the prophecy regarding John the Baptist. Commentators also point out that it's similar language that we find about King Saul in 1 Samuel 9, Moses in Exodus 14, David in 2 Samuel 3, and Abraham in Genesis 26. But this servant that Isaiah announces is different from all of the other servants that have come before David, Saul, Moses, and Abraham. All of these leaders had glimpses of faithfulness to God, but they also had sinful tendencies. Remember, Abraham twice denied that Sarah was his wife. Why did he do that? For her protection? No, for his own protection. He was willing to give up his wife in order to save himself. But the Messiah does the exact opposite. He gives up himself to save a people. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and to cover it up, orchestrated a plan to where Uriah would be on the front lines and die in battle. Moses killed an Egyptian And tried every excuse he possibly could to avoid being the leader that God would use to deliver his people out of Egyptian slavery. Saul made an unlawful sacrifice instead of waiting for Samuel. And he had intense jealousy towards David. Yes, these men... ...throughout the Old Testament were chosen by God at specific times to lead God's people... ...but they always fell short of complete faithfulness to God. This servant, however, in chapter 42, is upheld, the text tells us... ...and chosen by Yahweh and is fully faithful. The long-awaited Messiah was not a reaction to the unfaithfulness of Israel please understand that Jesus was not plan B. Before the foundation of the world, this was God's plan to send Jesus. He did not call an audible and ask Jesus to go down to earth because the Israelites weren't able to do what he wanted to do. No, he knew all along that the Messiah would have to come. So, when God sent Jesus to earth, what did Jesus do? He sent Jesus to fulfill all of the covenant obligations that Israel could not fulfill. He died, He was resurrected, and He ascended into heaven. And the only way God's people could ever faithfully keep all of the covenant demands is if Jesus kept them perfect on their behalf. Our faith in Christ is our faith in His ability to live the perfect life that we could not live because of our sin. He is the one who died the substitutionary death. He is the one who defeated death, and He is the one now who is seated at the right hand of the Father. Tim Keller always used to say, it's not the quality of our faith, but the object of our faith that holds us up what does he mean by that you can have all of the faith you want the strongest faith you could possibly have to sit on a branch and for it to hold you up but no matter how strong your faith is if that is a weak branch you will fall and break your back so try it go for it You can have all of the positive mental energy you want. The strongest faith in the world for this branch, it's going to hold me up. I guarantee it because my faith is so strong that this branch is going to hold me up. And if it's a bad branch, it will break. However, the weakest faith, the most minute faith on a branch that is strong and solid Will remain unbroken you can have the worst faith ever in the strongest branch and that branch will still hold you up a person's faith can be resolute in any number of things if it is faith in moral goodness to make them right before God that's wonderful But that moral goodness, no matter how strong that faith is in one's ability to perform in order to be made right with God, it's not faith that will save. The only faith that saves is faith in Christ. His perfection, His faithfulness. It's not the quality of our faith, but the object of our faith that holds us up. Jesus is that perfect object. He is that unwavering object that we can trust and believe in. But a person who has resolute resolute faith in Christ, despite our moral deficiencies, will still be reconciled to God. Because they're not making it about what they do, but rather what Christ has done. Isaiah tells us that this servant will bring justice to the nations. But it's a different type of justice than what the Israelites are used to. They're used to justice that they saw during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And that they would see during the reign of Cyrus these great rulers throughout history who brought justice by exerting their power in battle. And people feared these rulers because they used brute force in order to accomplish their purposes. In contrast, the servant of the Lord does not do that. He comes quietly. Look at the description in verse 3. A bruised reed. He will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. How easy it would be for God's chosen servant to fully exercise his power and authority over the nations in a display of his greatness. Listen to what one commentator said. God's answer to the oppressors of the world is not more oppression, nor is his answer to arrogance more arrogance. Rather, in quietness, humility, and simplicity, he will take all of the evil unto himself and return only grace. That is power. And that's what Jesus does. You know, as I read the New Testament, as we've been going through our Bible reading plan, we're getting done with the Gospel of Mark. We're moving into the Gosp- excuse me, Gospel of Matthew. We're moving into the Gospel of Mark. And when you read the Gospels, maybe it's just me, but in my sinful flesh, I often find Jesus wanting to react differently in certain situations. For example, when he heals people and he tells everyone watching and his disciples to not tell anybody about what he did. That frustrates me. Why? Why? Go tell everybody, Jesus, what you just did. He never defends himself when accusations are made. In the final days as he's marching to the cross, over and over again, the Romans and the Jews are asking him all of these questions and his answers are vague and oftentimes cryptic. He, he asks them questions back rather than giving them the answers. He's not concerned about defending himself against accusations he's not seeking glory in those moments at least for his miracles he's completely comfortable in his own skin and i'm not that's the difference he's god in the flesh i'm sinful man his obedience to his father always remained the most important thing. And Israel in this passage needed to be reminded that even though there are world powers like the Assyrians, like the Babylonians, like the Persians, who exercise brute force to accomplish justice, ultimate justice will prevail through a meek, gentle, and lowly servant who made himself nothing. Even though he won't bruise a reed, or quench a wick Isaiah reminds us he does not grow weary he's never discouraged and justice will be established through this servant not just for Israel but for the Gentiles as well which is why we see over and over again in Isaiah 40 to 55 this reference to the coastlands and as I said a few weeks ago anytime you see coastlands it's a reference to everywhere else the whole world the Gentiles. Justice will be established, not just for God's chosen people, Israel, but for the entire world. This is the announcement of the servant. But there's also a task for the servant. God reminds Israel in verse 5 what he has done for them. He created the heavens, stretched them out. He spread out the earth. And what comes from it? He gives breath To people in it. And spirit to those who walk in it. Now this should remind us of Genesis 1. When God created light and darkness. Sky, earth, moon, stars, vegetation, seas. All the creatures of the earth. Genesis 2.7. It says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became A living creature God is saying I did all of this Israel you have contributed nothing to creation other than working the land which I created and told you to work creation is used here to remind Israel of God's faithfulness to them. So God calls a servant in verse 6, and this servant has been called in righteousness. He will be taken by the hand, it says, and kept, and he will be a covenant for the people. Now, this particular servant is not one who will be raised up from within Israel, but one who will be sent down to Israel. This is the incarnation. Jesus coming. To live among God's people and when he comes he will not waver from the task given to him by his father John 5 19 says Jesus says truly I say to you the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does that the son does likewise so specifically The task for this servant will be to be a covenant for the people, to be a light for the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to set the prisoners free. Israel is familiar with covenants. They knew about the covenant with Noah. They knew about the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. And in all of those covenants, God was always able to faithfully fulfill His end of the covenant. In our Bible reading we just got through Exodus 24 where the Mosaic Covenant is confirmed and here's what it says then he being Moses took the book of the Covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient And Moses took the blood, and he threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, let me remind you what Israel said here. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. No, they don't. They can't. They're incapable of doing it. David was ultimately a man after God's own heart, and yet still unable to faithfully obey the covenant. Solomon was not obedient fully. All of these Old Testament covenants ultimately could not be fulfilled. And the task of the servant here in Isaiah 42 is to fulfill those covenant obligations perfectly in a way that Israel could not do. But yet this servant comes, we're told, from the tribe of Judah. He would be that perfect Israelite that no other Israelite could be, and he would be the representative of God's people. But his light would not just extend to Israel, but to all of the nations. And we have these beautiful references here to all of the wonderful things that Christ will do. He gives sight to the blind. He sets the prisoners free. It's pretty obvious what Isaiah is referencing here. He's showing us a servant who will deal with the sin problem that all of us have in our hearts. The Spirit is the one who opens up our eyes so that we can see the truth of God's love for us demonstrated in Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection. I am healed of my blindness not on my own but because the spirit has awakened within me the ability to understand what god has done through christ this is why when we're talking with lost people it's helpful sometimes to actually open god's word and explain to them what the gospel is because lost people are blind And the Holy Spirit works through the preaching and the sharing of his word. So as we turn to God's word, the spirit can begin the process of taking a dead heart and hopefully by God's grace allowing that person to be awakened and turn from their sin and place their faith in Christ. I don't break out of prison on my own. I don't understand the scriptures on my own. I am set free by the Spirit doing His work in my life, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. And who is the one who did all of this? Look at verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. No idol can do what God is going to accomplish through this servant. The false gods that Israel constantly worshipped could do nothing to fix their disobedient hearts. The false idols that we worship, family, career, money, Alabama athletics, can do nothing to fix our disobedient hearts. It will have to be a work That only God himself can do so let's stop trying to fix our hearts on our own if I ran a bookstore the self-help section of the bookstore would not exist now I wouldn't make a lot of money but my self-help section of the bookstore would have a few things it would have the Bible And it would have faithful Christians standing there. So when people came to that section, that faithful Christian could hand them a Bible and begin teaching them what God's Word says about how to fix yourself. So, in case you didn't notice, I'm not a fan of Chicken Noodle Soup for the Soul. I'm not a fan of Jordan Peterson's, whatever that book is, that focuses on your own efforts to be made right with God, just be a better husband, just be a better father, just be a better employee by following these steps. And they might make you better husbands and fathers and employees, but guess what? They don't save you from your sin. Therefore, you're not reconciled to God. And it's ultimately not helpful. So, I would make a terrible bookstore owner However, I like my chances, hopefully, by God's grace through His Spirit, to allow people to understand the beauty of the gospel. All of these former things will pass away, Isaiah says in this chapter. Cyrus is going to go away. Exile for Israel is going to end. And a suffering servant will come. And I'm telling you about it, Isaiah says, hundreds of years before it happens. So he concludes this section with the response, our response to the servant. And the only proper response to this news that Isaiah gives us here is worship. Not simply worship from Israel alone, but worship from the whole world. Look at this. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. The message of salvation to the whole world is a message that is worthy of our worship. Not just on Sundays. Every hour of every day, it's worthy of our worship. God's grace and mercy extended to us in spite of our rebellion against Him is cause for the whole world to bow down and worship God. Kadar here in this passage that's the second son of Ishmael go back and look in Genesis 25 he is representative of all desert dwellers why is a desert mentioned here it's supposed to be understood as a remote far-off place where not many people would dwell and Isaiah is saying even the desert dwellers will bow down to God Selah is referring most likely to an Edomite city. Edom first entered into the picture through the person of Esau, Jacob's twin brother. And even though Jacob and Esau reconcile in Genesis 33, Edom continues to cause havoc within Israel throughout the Old Testament. Saul goes to war with Edom in 1 Samuel 14. David goes to war with them in 2 Samuel 8. Solomon fights with them in 1 Kings 11. Jehoram in 2 Kings 8. Amaziah in 2 Kings 14. And Edom is even hostile when Jerusalem falls to Babylon referenced in both Psalm 137 and Obadiah 10 through 14. Edom is mentioned to us to show us that even the great enemies of God's people will worship Him from the top of the mountains. God will get His glory. He is consumed with it. Here's a definition of God's glory To help you understand what it is. The magnificence, worth, loveliness, and grandeur of his many perfections. Which he displays in his creative and redemptive acts. In order to make his glory known to those in his presence. Throughout the Bible, God communicates his glory. Through his creation. Through his image bearers through his providence, and through his redemptive acts. Here in Isaiah, he is worthy of glory because he will send a suffering servant on behalf of his people. And this servant will also be a light to the Gentiles. Isaiah is saying the time has finally come. God will establish justice. He will send Jesus to suffer and die as our substitute so that we might be reconciled to God grasp the significance when we say God died as our substitute this is such an important dimension of the atonement of Christ God's response to sin is judgment punishment wrath Curse, exile, and death. Those are the penalties for sin. But when Jesus dies in our place, he takes on what we deserve. So he is the one that receives judgment, Romans 8 3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He takes on our punishment. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. God's wrath is discussed in 1 Thessalonians 1:2. Jesus taking on the curse. Galatians 3:13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And then he takes on death. Hebrews two fourteen. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Christ died died as our substitute the only adequate response to this servant is worship and one day when jesus returns every tongue tribe nation and people will bow down and worship him as savior and lord so for those in christ today meditate this week on christ dying as your substitute And all that that entails. Lost people present today. Do you realize how much God loves you? That he would send Jesus to die as your substitute. Repent of your sin. Place your faith in Christ. And be reconciled to God. No other God has done this. Children. Jesus died as your substitute. Because he loves you. Teenagers. Jesus died as your substitute, and he atones for the sins that you don't think he can forgive you of. He forgives you, and the death of Christ demonstrates it. Adults, let's stop condemning ourselves because Jesus was condemned for us. Romans 8 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I close with verse 13. And then we will worship together. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. He is worthy of our worship today and every day. So we as God's people should never stop singing. Let's pray. God, we thank you that before the foundation of the world you had a plan to send your son to die in our place so that we might be reconciled to you. We thank you for that message. And we pray now that your gospel truth be planted in all of our hearts. The Christian, non-Christian, the teenager, the child, the adult. God, may we leave this place understanding the beauty of Jesus dying as our substitute. For any that are not in Christ, we pray that the seeds of your word would take root in their hearts, that they would come to faith in Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.